Okay, we're gonna talk about harvesting. Um, we've talked a little bit about it throughout the day. Um, food safety, uh, in case you weren't here earlier, um, uh, this gentleman in the back got me corrected. As of next year, if you sell more than $250,000 worth of produce, uh, or I think sell to retail outlets, you'll need to be following the FISMA or food safety, federal food safety, Modernization Act, yeah. So anyway, um, that entails a lot of paperwork. It's also things like testing your water sources. We talked about that. If you use, if you're using surface water, it's really not a good idea to be putting them on SERP to be applying surface water irrigation to food that you're going to eat. You really need to be using a well or drip irrigation or something like that, so that you're not getting that on the uh, foods or treating it. We ha we actually have to treat some of the um, water sources prior to going into blueberry fields or berry fields. Um, you need to have a plan. Uh, again, we talked briefly earlier, um, I was showing you pictures of that farm that is 1,200 acres. That farm's gonna produce 30 million pounds of berries. That's a lot of semi-loads leaving that farm every single day, all day, all night. How are you gonna cool that? Um, Blueberries are respirating. All your berries are, so they're actually, they're alive. I mean, it, you pick it, it's not dead. It's alive and it, it needs instantaneous cooling or it, the temperatures can actually increase. So this blue fruit, the ambient air temperature could be 85 degrees and this stuff is almost 100 degrees. If you test the temperature of that berry, we stop picking over over um, 85 degrees. It's too hot, they just, it just, you, you don't get the shelf life or the quality. So we go out and pick early and we quit. Um, we also don't pick when the berries are wet um, because that moisture on that berry, you take that in and put it in a cooler and add more moisture in the air and cold temperatures, which aren't that cold, you know, they're not frozen and it will um, start to decay quickly. Um, we'll talk about hand picking, we'll talk about mechanical harvesting, we'll talk about timing we'll talk a little bit of, we just talked a little bit about the cold chain what cold chain is referring to is that you should have a you should not be cooling and warming you need to be cooling and cooling and it needs to step down to where it's stable and so this is for selling into the marketplace okay this is i guess some of you may be thinking about doing this um, so if you're picking and you're cooling it down to 50 degrees you don't want to be going back up to 65 degrees unless you're unless that occasion is happening when you're selling it, say, to farmer's market or you're selling it to uh, grocery, retail, or the customers are picking it up in their CSA boxes, something like that, okay? So on the commercial side, we drop down to, I think it's um, 45 degrees. Then we run our sorting and packing. We drop down to 35 degrees in our sorting and packing, and we drop down to 32 degrees just before they're shipped out to and held long-term in cold storage. So you're always... They'll sweat if they go from cold to warm, they sweat, which creates moisture, which also creates a problem. And then transportation. Okay, beautiful looking cluster of blueberries, right? Except for those two green ones. <laughs> those are gonna get knocked off when you harvest these blue ones. Um, one of the things that we didn't talk about was all these varieties have different, none of these are one pick wonders. That's what we kind of, referred to. There's only one variety that's that and it's only for frozen. It doesn't hold up for fresh so it's not firm enough on the fresh side. So a plant like Duke will pick five times. 
The farther south you go, the more often you'll be picking. So these northern chill climates do have a more concentrated harvesting, but it's still very spread out. Usually we're on a 10-day cycle to pick our berries. So we're picking the same variety every 10 days. Sometimes that's seven days, depending upon the heat in the field. But um, it's really uh, critical. So we had this mantra, mantra that we said in Spanish, and I can't remember exactly how to say it in Spanish, but to all of our workers, it was like, instead of saying hi to somebody when you greeted them, you said, please wash your hands, no reds and greens. <laughs> During the harvest season, it was just, it, it was kind of a joke that everybody knew, but it was, um, this is a really great um, crate of berries because there's very few red berries in here. And in fact, these red berries in cold storage for two or three days will turn mostly blue. So they'll be okay. But um, it's always a challenge to get pickers to pick just um, the blue fruit and leave all the other stuff out there, yes. So all these picking buckets every morning, see how they're not sitting on the ground? These cr trays are only to be used for putting on the ground and then putting your buckets on them and they're, everything's sanitized. And then these crates here, these berries go into the plant they're dumped out and, and onto the sorting system, which you'll see later. And they're run through a sanitizing bath with hot water and a sanitizer like tsunami or chlorine. And then they come back to the field and they're stored inside of um, enclosed um, semi-trailers so that birds don't get in there and cause problems or any kind of a... So this is a typical um, kind of harvesting setup. Um, you've got 25 feet before, between these fields. You can see the mature field on the left side is really full. Um, this is that 300 acre farm I showed you in the very beginning. So this is the how we harvested that farm. We made these specially designed trailers to hold four pallets and be low to the ground. Um, and they also track, so you can, you can tow three or four of those trailers through a field. Notice the set of bathrooms. And this is actually set up incorrectly the doors are opening towards the field that they're picking. So it's supposed to be the other way around, so the door opens into the roadway. Um, and we don't allow smoking on any of our farms. We just um, mandated no smoking on the entire farm to get away from the issue of people smoking even out in the field. You know, you could smoke here, but you can't smoke here, and you can't take anything into the field but water. And people will take their sweatshirts out here in the field and then take them off. You can't have that in the field, so you have to tie it around yourself or bring it out here or keep your backpack at the end of the row. So in the field, there's all these regulations about, and you have this plan, it's a binder like this, and it's like the Bible that you have to follow every procedure in there. It's definitely um, salvation by works when it comes to food safety. <laughs> it's... It's necessary, but and, I mean, and, and you have to follow it when you're, when you're at the scale we were at. But anyway, so um, one thing about organization, um, the, uh, this is organized so that you come into the field and there's a pallet on the ground they set their crates on. So they, none, of this, none of these buckets are set on the ground. So you come in, you set your buckets on the ground, um, you dump your bucket, which is 10 pounds of berries. Each of these two gallon buckets are 10 pounds of berries. You dump it in this crate and I want a bucket and a half in each crate. They're 20 pound crates, but for fresh, I want them really thin. You know, I don't want to fill that up. They're sorting because they were bad pickers. So anytime something's coming in with too many reds and greens, I'm paying by pound for the pickers to pick, right? 
So they get told to go over to this over here and pick out their reds and greens, which also ruins the other berries they're picking through because they're being rough about it. But at least after a time or two, you get three strikes and you're out. And we would star people when they come in. Um, we had a scanner, they had a little uh, card and you scan it, that's the person. And then um, they get a little ticket that says how much they've been, they've been picking. So, and they know how many pounds, how many, they know the price per pound that we're paying, so they know exactly how much they're picking. And another big thing here is, um, if you're not aware of it, um, families like to pick on one person's ticket, and they call them ghost pickers. So it looks like this one person picked 2,000 pounds, but it's a family of five. You can't have any of that. So you really need to understand your labor laws, your food safety laws, if you're going to do anything at any kind of scale over $250,000. Uh, highly important. Um, yeah, people, farmers lost their farms because of a food safety event. So do you know, do you, does anybody remember the, the um, earthbound lettuce, spinach issue? That was a half pallet of spinach. They were custom packing for another farmer. It was not even their crop. That cost them to lose their company. They basically lost it to the attorney firm that represented them and, that, and people died and then they, the attorneys sold it to a venture capital company, their portion of it. So they ended up not owning their, and there actually wasn't a farm. Earthbound is just processing and marketing. They don't own farms, it's all leased. But anyway, that was a half pallet of spinach. So just <laughs> to give you perspective. Um, and then we have, a, we have on staff a picker who's average, and that person goes out and does test picks ahead of time so we know what to pay them when they show up and we get it in the middle. If you're a good picker, you should be able to make 25 to $30 an hour. If you're a meat average picker, you can make $18 an hour or so. And in, uh, you have to be, you can't be a slow picker because you have to make minimum wage. And if they don't make minimum wage, you have to pay them the extra amount so that they've made minimum wage on an hourly basis. You also have to have lunch breaks. You have to have um, breaks. So we, you know, we have one of those big bullhorns, and we announce that it's break time. They're being paid by the piece, so sometimes they don't take it. But you have to announce all of that, and it has to. It's a huge nightmare, um, but it's what's required. So, so this is a typical weigh-in station where people are coming in from the field, dumping them in, into the crates. They're going down, getting weighed down here, then going right onto the uh, the trailer behind it. Um, um, so this is starting some uh, mechanical harvesting videos here. So this is a mechanical harvester picking a, a small, a young field. Um, see all the green in there? You, this is what you do. You just don't look at it. You also don't want to see the 15% that's on the ground. It just gets knocked off and never makes it in the harvester. The more on the ground, the happier I am though, because it means there's a bigger yield that actually made it out on the harvester. So, well, unless it's a bad driver and then he's just doing things on, um, yeah, anyway. Okay, so these machines, um, they're made by um, Oxbow, actually makes blueberry harvesters and Latau Harvester out of state in Oregon makes these. Um, they're adjustable. Okay, so there's all these adjustments that you can do to uh, change how much blue is coming off and how much green and how much red you're picking up. Sometimes it comes down to you just need to go on vacation for 10 days and come back and then it's ready to pick. So all the adjustments in the world are not going to fix the fact that it's not ripe yet. 
Um, we have had physiological issues with weather. So it's been these weird weather events and it's changing, it is changing even more now where they won't release from the stem. It doesn't matter how much you beat on them, they just don't wanna come off. Um, so there are weird physiological or environmental issues outside of the ability to, to you know, make adjustments to the machine. Okay, you can adjust speed. So that's how fast you're driving through the field. These typically are driving a quarter to a half mile an hour. Half mile an hour is really fast. So you're driving like a quarter mile an hour or less. You're just really going slowly through the field. Um, and then they're weighted. And you'll see this in another video here. Okay, here's a slow motion that shows this. Um, just I'll get to your question in a minute. Um, this shows the action of the beater and the catcher plates as they're going around and you can see the blueberries falling off. So that thing is going like this, right? Okay, think about getting hit with a whip or hit with a baseball bat. They're both different actions, right? That, re that result with different um, impact. So a lot of times this is a big thick rod and we also have these little thin ones. Sometimes we're trying to whip the plant and different varieties are different as well. And we can put more weight behind that so that it changes how hard that it's impacts. So we can have this long stroke where it comes out to the end and then, and then just moves the whole plant or we can slap the plant. And it all depends on the variety and the time of year, which one we want. So we're constantly changing weights up in the rotor head. We're changing our speed through the field. Um, and we're changing uh, how fast that orbital motor is going. So the weight behind it changes the stroke action the speed of the motor changes how fast it's moving and the speed through the field is how fast we're hitting each plant. So we're coming up to that plant, how long are we spending on that plant? Because you can actually literally whip the new growth off a plant. You can beat the new growth off. You can beat all the green fruit off and all of it off. The key trick is to get all of the ripe fruit off and the least amount of red and green. And it's always a compromise. It's always a compromise. But, okay, another thing is going down through the field, I get excited about this kind of stuff, but you go down through these fields and you hit a low spot and you have to change your beater speed and your drive speed because the fruit will be either riper or less ripe. And a good driver will do that and a bad driver will cost you a lot of money, quick. Uh, I just bought one, 233,000. But it can pick 30 to 50 acres. If you have more multiple varieties, you can pick 50 to 60 acres with one machine. We have that 300 acre farm that we have in Woodburn has four machines on it and we'll likely need a fifth. A 100 acre farm, that one we were budgeting is gonna have two machines on it. So handpicking cost us an average of, I think 79 cents last year and machine picking was 20 cents. Yeah, labor cost. Yeah, it was a $330,000 difference. We sent some fruit which, um, a, buy, a broker, not broker, marketer bought from us uh, a batch of fruit and then I sent a batch of fruit through this other system, okay. So the, the marketing company, they picked 85% of the fruit they took by hand. They wanted it by hand. So the other 15% was machine pick. The other guy took 49% um, hand pick, 51% machine pick, half and half, okay machined in hand. Both went into fresh. I got 55 cents, no, was it? no, sorry, 15 cents more per pound 
from this <laughs> method of 50-50 hand and machine versus this 85% hand. And that equated to $335,000 more profit going this way. So um, it's, it's the, the ultimate which we're working towards, and this is what we're doing now, is 85% machine pick for fresh. And when that goes into the pack, packing facility, I just got, so in my previous job, one of my last things I did was design a 30 million pound packing facility for fresh. And it was designed to take machine harvested fruit, pack the best and highest use quality out of that for fresh, which is about 60 to 80% of that machine picked fruit could go fresh. Versus hand picked fruit, we're packing out 90%, 95%. Now, it goes down if you get a, as you go through the year and you're picking, like if you're pick, on your third picking of a, of a variety, it's usually not that high quality. But I'm just saying equal to equal, machine pick, we're gonna pack out 60 to 80%. Hand pick, we're going to pick out 80 to 90% of it. So you can see we're packing out more this way. But on the machine side, what we're doing is we're taking that, let's say it's 60% of it's being packed out for fresh. That other 40%, I'm packing 30% of that for frozen, another 10% for juice stock, another 5%, well, another 15% in juice stock, and I'm losing 5%. I'm still losing 5%. It's just total garbage on the hand pick side. It's not like it's any better. And some days, the machine pick looks cleaner than the hand pick. Some days. Um, but anyway, I'm trying to describe that to you, I guess. Is that making sense? Okay, so the hand pick is at least 75 cents a pound, and this machine harvesting is only 20 cents a pound. So our economics are way better if we're doing this system over here. So, so this is just showing you a crate that's coming off the machine. Um, you see the red and green. So your question here, this red one, which we call red back, that will be okay. But this will never turn here. And that one will never turn. And that one's got too much green on it. See how there's green right around the stem there? That one won't turn either. So this, this is a large mature planting and you'll be able to see here, they'll start coming off. We couldn't find it, but my son and I, we actually had a GoPro on one of these pickers. We had a whole picking video and we can't find it because as you upgrade computers, somehow I lose things on, on the computer. But So that's a mature field. See how loaded down it is? These are the fun ones to pick. That belt literally, see this belt here? Belt here? It's literally like berries are falling off the sides when you're in a really big field. In fact, I, one day I was out there and there's a harvester out in the middle of the field stopped and I thought it was broke down. I yelled out there and I was like, hey, what's the problem? And the guys were walking out and they had to get more crates. We send them out with like 4,000 pounds worth of crates. And he had filled those up. They had berries on their laps. They had berries all over. I mean, it was just to get out the row. They were pick, picked 30,000 pounds of the acre. And on that first pass, we were picking 15,000 pounds. So every row was just, it was just crazy. That's, that's when it's really fun. I mean, it's, so this is the pack shed. And we'll talk about this because it's almost to the, actually it's, it's almost to the last here, so. So the berries come in, they're dumped onto this conveyor, go through a um, air, bl a blower that blows out all the leaves and sticks and small berries. This, I'm gonna describe both of these because this other side is different than this. This is a um, Italian made machine that individually singulates the berries and looks at every berry. It takes nine photographs of every berry 
And then we, from that, we have, we, there's an algorithm that picks up the bruising on the inside. So that berry looks totally fine, but it's been bruised and it's gonna deteriorate in that clamshell in the store five days from now. And so we're sorting those out and it's doing 6,500 pounds an hour through that machine, sorting through them like that. And it uses little puffs of air and it can also sort by size. So uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when I get a clamshell of berries and they're all the same size, it, it, to me, I, I think they're of higher quality. And when I get these clamshells with little berries and big berries, it just seems like a mess in there, right? Well, that's what we were doing here. All that is is you don't care if you're buying medium-sized or large, but if they're all the same size, right? So, so we're sorting jumbo, large. It's not that we're getting any more money, but when they go to the retailer, they're just... It's more aesthetically pleasing, yeah. So back here on the start, this system on this side is doing it um, not with, well, it's using a camera, but it's running, it's not singulating. And it's doing a, so it's an air blower, it's an intake air blower, and then it's a color sorter. So we set the first color sorter to take out green and some red. The next one is a soft sorter. It's testing every berry as it goes across the plates uh, if it's soft, meaning mushy, or if it's degrading already. The next one's another color sorter, which we're picking out more red. Every time it goes across the sorter, you're sorting out less. Um, that one on this side, left side, runs 15,000 pounds an hour, and we were supposed to have six people on this side and cost us 13 cents in labor to run through here, but this system was so efficient, we were tr it was only had one person at the end of it sorting by hand and cost eight cents a pound. So um, these are things you do when you have the scale to do it, obviously. If you were selling on a small scale, two acres, um, there's manufacturers that can make you a little belt, like an inspection belt, and a blower. It is really key to have a blower blow out because that'll blow out leaves, green berries, because they weigh less than the blue fruit does. Blow that out and then inspect that and then funnel it into a, a little, like a cone shape. You can, you can make a little packing system for small scale. Um, I don't have exact numbers, but you can make something like that um, pretty inexpensively to just speed up and add some efficiency at the small scale too, so. Uh, blackberries and, and raspberries don't do well or black raspberries fresh mechanically harvested yet. Um, they're working on it, but we're a long ways from that. So they're typically growing those. So it's interesting, I would really like to grow some blackberries here for frozen organic blackberries, but the frozen organic blackberry market is the secondary, it's the off take from the fresh blackberry production out of Mexico. And the price is like 65 cents a pound and I feel like I need 85 cents a pound to make it work and be profitable enough to take the risk and the capital here in the US. And so you're then looking for a client who wants domestically produced organic blackberries. And those are hard. Everybody says they want that. And then they're like, well, what's that gonna cost me? Because it's this is a, in a blend. It's in that smoothie blend at Costco. Three pounds, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, or strawberries, right? And they're like, well, price it out domestically and price it out with just whatever. And you know, they're not gonna pay that extra 20 cents a pound for that product. It's kind of a bummer because it, we grow some of the best berries here in Oregon 
anywhere. So blackberry prices are depressed and uh, I think as far as the crops that would excite me not, you know, at any kind of a scale right now, it's probably cranberry and hazelnuts, but you also have to have the stomach and the capital finance, you know, the, the backing to, to take the risk to do it organic because there's no program. Right now, we, we were on the cutting edge of the organic, scaling organic blueberries and worked with OSU really closely to get this done and figure it out. And right now, blueberries are pretty well, like it's a pretty good system. I mean, people, you know, there's little things you're tweaking here and there, but it's not unknown. It's a known. It can be done. It can be done well. And I think someday you'll see most blueberries will be organic because there wouldn't be any reason why not to. A lot of the baby carrots, are, like 75% of baby carrots are grown organically, but only like 30 or 40% are marketed organically. It's a, uh, just because they're not, they're trying not to overrun their organic market. Yeah, price, price, they're trying to keep the price up for what they do sell organically and the rest just goes in conventional production. There was a big 3,000 acre veg farm in Colorado that was actually, he was watching the markets on an hourly basis and when the market dipped too low, he had a conventional box on the line and everything went conventional. It was like broccoli and cauliflower and everything and lettuce. He just like shipped it conventional because he was protecting that price margin on the uh, organic side. So I had these blackberries, we were harvesting by hand and I wanted, I needed $24 a flat to make, pay everybody and to make a return. I went to Whole Foods in Portland here when they opened the first store and said, would you like to buy my blackberries? I took them a flat of blackberries. Oh, these are the best things we've ever tasted. How much? I said $24. Oh, we can't do that. Why is that? Because I had calculated already, I'd walked the store. And the blackberries, they were selling for what would equal $70 a flat, okay? They were getting blackberries out of California for $12 a flat and could not pay 24 they would have sold every berry because of the taste and the, and the quality. And I was gonna deliver every other day, you know, let's keep this, yeah. This, this just kills you. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it just, that's what you face. So um, Costco marks up 15%, that's it. They're great to work with, They're really great people to work with, but you have to supply a whole DC, like a whole, you know, like you need 5 million pounds of frozen organic blueberries before you can talk to them about supplying them. And that's one distribution center area. The LA distribution center sold, I can't remember the numbers, but they, in three hours of bringing in the first organic blue, frozen blueberries were sold out in like three hours. And uh, it was another year before you could get any more organic blueberries to that one LA distribution center. So um, I think, we're still at the total blueberry production is still like five, only 5% 5 organic. It's really small. So I think there's a lot of room there. Um, but, but companies like Whole Foods, which you would think should be on your side as a farmer, they mark up, I mean, it's, yeah, $70 for 24. Yeah, whole paycheck, yeah. New seasons, Mark. I highly recommend working with restaurants. If you're small scale, work with CSA, restaurants, um, local grocery chains and co-ops. Co-ops are great, um, they're kind of funky, and, but they're great to work with. I mean, I, I, you like wor I like working with them. Um, personally, if, if I was doing anything small scale, I would design 
my farm to do only fresh in the summertime. I would take all my extra crop and freeze it. And then I would make frozen blueberries in like a five, five pound, probably like a one gallon Ziploc bag type of a situation. And then I would grow, I would focus my summertime vegetable production on stuff that was high value, higher value stuff and simplify it. Only grow a few things, don't grow everything. And then I would grow winter time vegetables because still in the US, it's hard to get US grown, locally grown food in the winter time. And all winter long, I would, I would have a, you would have a production as you know, a CSA or supply that you could do locally with the frozen berries, maybe a preserve, um, there's nothing like a quart jar of like berry sauce or something. It would be pretty simple to make. Um, yeah, you need a commercial kitchen license, which you kind of could get. Or what about the church? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's like, there's got to think outside the box. Could you go together with three or four people? Could you use the cafeteria at the local school on a Sunday? Go have a jam making party? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there you go. That's yeah. So it depends on where you're at. Like in Portland, there's all kinds of um, collaborative kitchens in Portland now, um, and ways to do that. So, and I would focus on storage crops for the winter, so you would have that year-round, and then maybe some cold-hardy greens, so that you had this mix of. But that way, you're doing less crops. You're focused, you can be more efficient, you can do more square footage of those same of this crop. You get a system approach down and you you know you can really create some I think more economic value and the margins go up when you become more efficient like that. So So Oregon produces about four percent of the world's uh, hazelnut production. Um, thirty I think it's thirty percent of the world's hazelnut production goes into one product. That's Nutella. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, right? And um, so Turkey is the largest producer of hazelnuts in the world, but they're declining because they're all these little half acre and quarter acre plots on hillsides that they're picking. So they're not really commercially viable long term. Um, they don't produce much in the way of yield per acre as we do in the Northwest. Again, hazelnuts we produce, I call them hazelnuts. If you say filberts, that's like, you can't sell filberts. You can grow filberts, but you can't sell them, but you can sell hazelnuts. It's the same exact thing. <clears throat> um, it's just marketing. Um, so uh, countries like Azerbaijan, yeah, great, thank you. Those are huge new growing regions for hazelnuts that will compete with the Northwest. The Northwest crop is larger than anywhere else in the world, so the nut size, and they're typically sold to China in shell. Like 75% of our Oregon crop goes to China in shell. With this year's tariff situation and the uh, weakening dollar in Turkey, we had a low price for the growers. It went from last, uh, it was two or three years ago, it was $2 a pound. We we're at 62 cents a pound this year. Yeah, terrible, um, which I'm all happy about because I'm gonna go organic and hopefully not be in that market. And I think the future for US grown hazelnuts is really in kernels and uh, food, um, food service. It really needs to be in using the kernel here in the US. So we need different varieties. 
The varieties that they ship to China are typically larger, don't have the flavor profile that the smaller kernel varieties do. So the plant that we bought is focused on, we did 4.6 million pounds this year and about 40% of that goes into kernels. And it goes into like bakery type stuff, like I said, food service, that kind of stuff in large scale. So we're, we think that is the way that hazelnuts are going or should be going. So. Hardy kiwis are now a new crop in planting in Oregon. Um, Hearst Berry Farm has been selling hardy kiwis for quite some time, and that's actually a pretty decent crop. Um, it can have issues with frost and cold hardiness, but uh, it's interesting. It's a huge investment. The trellis systems, the time it takes to get in, but it's, it can grow well here. It's a short story. <laughs> I, I wanted a job, and so I went to work for the neighboring farmer, and uh, my dad said, uh, uh, you need to you know, go to college and get a computer engineering degree. And um, I just loved farming so much from day one. I mean, it was so interesting to me and fascinating. You know, it, it kind of, it kept my um, interest. Like, I like to be doing different things. The same thing every day is really tasking for me and de-energizing. So I, I really feel energized by doing new things every day. And there was something super rewarding about growing something and seeing that thing, you know, either become a tree or, um, you know, food or whatever. So uh, I started uh, working for the neighboring farm full time when I was uh, 14 and um, did homeschool at nights and on Sunday. And um, uh, uh, yeah, just, um, and I, I tried college. I, was, I really wanted to get a two-year horticulture degree here at Clackamas Community College. And I just, I really struggled in school to get grades. Like I knew the materials and could repeat it to you today. Like I just spouted off all that hazelnut information, right? Yeah, go put you down in front of a test, complete blank. Walk out of the testing room and I can remember almost all the answers on the page or questions and the answers, but I just, and I didn't have help. The like family support system wasn't there to figure out how to help that. And uh, so that didn't work for me. So I just been working full time farming since I was uh, 14. I, I only put down 25 years because you look at me and then you're like, well, that guy's not been farming for 28 years, but or 29 this year. But anyway, the, yeah, so um, I think it's just had really great opportunities. Um, the guy I first worked for, he was always happy about everything. When, even when it was a complete mess. I mean, a complete disaster. You know what I'm saying about being a day late and a dollar short? This guy was three months late. And I mean, somehow we always had money to do what we needed to do, but it was just this crazy. I'm changing belts on a Christmas tree harvester with a headlamp that's going dead at 2 a.m. in the mud and it's snowing outside because the truck showed up that afternoon and oh, we didn't think about, we had to cut the trees for that truck. So that was this huge opportunity. And so I was kind of like an inflexible person as a kid. I was like, oh, I need my routine, I need this. That like completely blew it out of the water. Like trial by fire, great way to start agriculture and learn that it's like this huge complicated thing and that you need to understand that you're not in control of most of it. Like 98% of it, you're not in control of. <clears throat> so that was a great learning experience, but then I decided I really need to learn from somebody who was really doing it well. I spent several years, you know, working in um, uh, nursery stock production for some of the bigger nurseries in Oregon. Um, 
I was always really good naturally somehow God blessed me with the skill to like figure out how to make things go faster like processes processes equipment um, you know figure out how to meld these things together to make that sprayer that now did all these things I mean by the way those efficiencies that we saved on that 3,000 acre farm 1200 acres is blueberries the other 1200 is hazelnuts and then there's some other ground that's in other crops um, we saved over $600,000 a year in labor savings by building out some of these efficiency things. And I'm, that's part of my talk on Friday is about what we were doing there. So um, just kept having these opportunities to meet new people and to do new things and um, worked my way up. I was chairman of the Oregon Blueberry Commission and traveled with the governor to Asia to open up South Korea fresh blueberries from Oregon. Um, did some lobbying in DC, spent several trips in Asia just learning. Um, I guess I like learning a lot and and helping other people. I was helping this guy in China out of wherever he was for pruning blackberries. He had these blackberries in the back. He had no idea how to prune them. They were, they were triple crown in China, outside of um, Shanghai, you know, middle of nowhere farming out there. He had blueberries and we went to see the blueberries and here he had triple crown. I'm like, I know this variety. I can help, you know. And so we just started the conversation. We pruned like a row while we were there. He had no idea how to do that. So that was super great to do. And I guess um, I've always enjoyed helping people develop too. So not only developing farms, but just helping people develop. So um, that company that we sold out our ownership from last year, uh, we developed 120 people. That was the, the year-round workforce plus another 600 that came in seasonally. So it was just really rewarding to be able to bless them. And um, we paid living wages. So we were, um, that was exciting to be able to have that opportunity to do that. So yeah, um, we taught um, small-scale farming at Laurelwood Academy for five years when it was self-supporting. Um, so after the conference owned it, it went self-supporting. Um, that would have been in, I guess, 96 through 2000, 2001, something like, probably 2001, I guess, something, sometime in there. Um, and they had a half acre garden when we came and we grew that to 35 acres certified organic with 12 acres of vegetable production every year. We didn't have a lot of water there, so we grew five acres every year. Of that 12 was dry land potatoes and we sold those into Portland into restaurants. So we sold the produce into, into Portland. Um, we also, I finally got this passed. Um, we took 30% of the cafeteria's budget and gave it to the farm. So like first thing I realized was like, I have no budget. I'm like, guys, like I need a budget. I can't just like walk around here and, you know, pull seeds out of wherever and plant. So first I made a budget, I'm like, this is what I want to spend. This is what I'm going to make, you know, and anyway, and somehow someone approved it. Thought. And I think I was only, what was I? I was 21 at the time. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and somebody had the bright idea to tell us we should take students to Europe. And I'm 21 years old and we were married. We, our kid's three years old, but yeah, we did. We, we went to Norway the first year and built a produce w washing facility on the, the Adventist farm in Norway. And that was great. But anyway, back to on track here. Um, so we created a budget. We grew that, um, 
we sold outside, so we actually had cash coming in, and then we provided to the cafeteria, so it was a net reduction in the cafeteria's cost. And the only way that worked is that we had to, I took all my farm kids, we'd harvest the stuff, we'd go to the cafeteria and we'd wash it, so it was prep ready, you know, line ready, so they could go out there. And then we also had these great big freezing parties, we would freeze corn. And, and you had those, they had those great big boiling things, so you could, you could really, get into production in that cafeteria and, and do corn. So we froze corn, beans, peppers, and then we grew tomatoes in the wintertime in a heated greenhouse. We had the stored potatoes, stored winter squash, berries, all that stuff that we you know, provided in the cafeteria. Um, and we had kids every year, I got wise. First off, the first year they would give me kids, like they sorted the kids out and then they gave me kids. <laughs> I was like, where did these kids come from? They really don't want to be on the farm. So the next year I went to registration day and I, and I watched every kid that came in and I set my booth up. I got there early because I don't care about getting early. So I got there early, set up my farm booth at the door. And those kids walked in, I'm like, you need to work on the farm. It's the best place to work on the farm. You're working outside, it's fun. We have all this fun. Anyway, now we get four kids and one project kid. And that ratio is like perfect. It doesn't get out of hand. Three, three and two, it goes south on you so fast. Yeah, anyway, so my wife and I are really blessed. Um, those kids are still like part of our lives. We just spent Christmas with them all at the beach. And they're now in their you know, mid-30s and have kids of their own. And um, I think all, all of the kids that went through the farm program are all, um, there might be only one or two that are, haven't found a meaningful employment or you know those kind of things or have had family issues. Everybody else seems to have all pretty well um, survived <laughs> and, and are productive citizens. <laughs> Growing up's hard, even in a good family, even in a great family. We're just getting so far from the beginning that the tools in our tool chests aren't what they used to be. And the, the, the best parents with the best tool chests, it's still, it's just a huge challenge. Yeah, the more, I think the more you can have, um, it, it was also, we had kids that thought beets came from trees. So <laughs> it was really, I mean, there was something grounding about growing those carrots, picking them up, taking them to the cafeteria line and then eating them. They knew where they came from. And I, I, you know, the agrarian society, we've moved so far from an agrarian society and there's so few farmers left that uh, it's just changed everything. Uh, the, the gratitude of eating what you grew or, you know, and, and doing that. The, you know, farming's a lifestyle. So whatever, if, if you're not the kind of person that likes to, uh, or if you're the kind of person that likes the nine to five or the eight to four, 30, don't go into farming. It's kind of like a doctor where you're, you might be at home sleeping, but you're still worried about the patient that's at the hospital, even though they're doing okay. It's a lifestyle, it's an immersive thing, but, I, but it was also really good for me. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.
www.audioverse.org.